You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Let's pray and then we'll get into the Word together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. May we devote our hearts and minds wholeheartedly to you. For these next 50 minutes, Lord, would we give you our full and undivided attention? Would you pour into us a hunger and thirst for what is good and right and true according to your word and your ways? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would reveal and speak to us today. Lord, we thank you that when we call upon your name, here you are meeting with us, overjoyed as a good father is to meet with his children. Lord, as an imperfect man, I need your spirit to give me wisdom to teach your perfect word. May this matter to our lives. May it build us as men and women in Christ Jesus. May we give you glory by the way we live out what we learn in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. So this first question Jesus asks is, why did you doubt? Or the full sentence that he uses, speaking to Peter, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And here's the context of the message. The context is Jesus has just performed an incredible miracle. There's at least 5,000 men sitting on a hillside. Jesus has been healing and teaching them. And he tells his disciples, I want you to feed them and not send them away. And the disciples go, listen, it doesn't matter if we even had the money to buy all the food. We don't have anywhere to get the food. And Jesus says, well, bring me what you do have. And there's five loaves and two fish. And Jesus takes the bread and the fish. It says that he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he begins to distribute it to his disciples. And it's his disciples who get to experience the multiplication of food for roughly 15,000 to to 20,000 people in total, including women and children. They witness this miracle of Jesus doing something absolutely incredible. What an opportunity to see God's power. What an opportunity to see his sovereignty, to be able to take such little sustenance and turn it into more than enough. And not only is it more than enough for everyone, but the disciples, if you remember the story, how many baskets do they collect of leftovers? Twelve baskets of leftovers. This testimony of God's provision. And as we pick up in Matthew 14, 22, the scripture tells us immediately, meaning following this miracle, following the feeding of the 5,000 men, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Well, it's kind of odd that they just get in a boat and Jesus sends them away. But John chapter 6, John records this same story with additional detail. And he says the reason why Jesus puts them in the boat is because once Jesus had fed everybody, they go, oh man, we need to make this guy king right now because he did what for them? Free in and out. Free Chick-fil-A fries for everybody. 
And isn't it like our own culture today that politicians will use the giving away of free things in order to elevate themselves and build platforms for the purpose of getting into positions? And oftentimes, it's not the things that are healthy for people. It cripples them more than it builds them. And Jesus is in no way interested in becoming a king because he provides a little bit of food. He's not there simply to fill their stomachs. He's there to fill their souls. They need ransoming and rescuing from their sin. And he came to pay that penalty on their behalf. That's why he's king. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples getting wrapped up in this nonsense. So he literally gets them in a boat and he sends them across the lake or the sea of Galilee. Verse 23. And when he, Jesus, had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. Uh, Also within the context of this section of scripture, we have to remember that John the Baptist had just been beheaded by Herod and Jesus had found out and he actually went to this isolated place to pray, to mourn, to weep over his cousin John. And it says that the crowds found him and they brought to him their sick and he had compassion on them. He stops what he's doing and he ministers to people. Uh, just shows us the character of God through Jesus Christ. Anytime you're hurting, anytime you cry out to him, he is always available, always listening. Verse 24, but the boat that the disciples was in was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Uh, Contrary meaning it was hostile, it was loud. I can remember in 2006, I had the privilege of going to Israel with my immediate family. And we took a boat tour on the Sea of Galilee. And when we got onto the boat, it was sunny, 70 degrees, beautiful day. And literally by the time we got to the middle of the lake, there was lightning, thunder, and four-foot waves. And I looked at my dad and I was like, you get out first. (laughs) Needless to say, neither of us got out of the boat. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is known because of the way that it sits geographically in this bowl for storms to just come upon the sea quickly. And in this case, the disciples find themselves in quite a difficult circumstance. A massive storm. We get more detail as we continue. Verse 25. Now in the fourth watch of the night, that's sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, I bet they were, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Uh, What an incredible story. What an act of faith by Peter. First, there's this fear and turmoil. By the way, uh, things get scarier when it's in the dark, doesn't it? How many of you are those people that you keep the light on in your home if you're the only one home? How many of you are too scared to raise your hand? Yeah, see? Anytime we're in the dark, 
Our emotions, our senses are just enhanced. And you can imagine the waves are crashing over the boat. We get this picture in Matthew chapter 8, except the difference between the Matthew 8 story and the Matthew 14 story is that Jesus is actually in the boat with the disciples in Matthew 8. What's Jesus doing, by the way? He's taking a nap, but at least he's in there and they wake him up and go, don't you care that we're perishing? Now keep in mind, who were a lot of these disciples? What was their profession? They were fishermen. So this had to be some kind of gnarly storm in order for these men to be terrified for their lives. The oars aren't doing anything for them. They're rowing and they're going nowhere. Their sails are most likely down because the wind is too violent and hostile. The waves are crashing over the boat. And on top of all of that, it's the early morning. They're exhausted. I have no doubt, by the way, that being a disciple of Jesus Christ was an exhausting thing physically. He was constantly ministering to people. They were always walking around. And here they are now in the dark experiencing this massive storm. Great fear comes upon them. Physical distress. And to make the physical distress worse, Jesus comes walking on the water and they think he's what? They think he's a ghost. So now they're emotionally and mentally distressed on top of their physical issue that they've got with this storm. And isn't this like our life? That when we face trouble and hard things, it's hardly just one area of our life. If you get a diagnosis that you've got cancer, there's the physical part to deal with. But the mental, emotional, and spiritual trouble that comes with it is great. If you're going through a rough patch in your marriage or a divorce or you lose a family member to death, not only is there a physical component in which you feel the weight, but your heart, your mind is consumed with these troubles. The disciples are in a position where they're stuck. There's nothing in their own strength that they can possibly do to get out of the condition that they are in. Verse 30, but when he, meaning Peter, saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came. And worship Jesus, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This question that Jesus presents to Peter is the same question that we should be asking ourselves in many of our circumstances. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Well, doubting is simply just calling the truth into question. It's to be uncertain. It's to be distrusting. And when we look at this from a spiritual condition, it's to not trust Jesus, to not trust God, to be able to either overcome or to have the ability to provide or to deliver or whatever it might be. Doubt is literally the opposite of trusting God or faith. Why do we doubt? This is the question that Jesus poses to Peter. Here's why we doubt. Because life is full of troubles. Life is full of troubles and we all struggle with doubt. 
uh, I wouldn't ask the question, how many of you don't struggle with doubt? Because we all struggle with doubt. And it can be in small things, or it can be in significant issues. Uh, consider maybe the smaller matters in life. Uh, car problems. Plumbing woes. Spilling something on your clothes before you go to a party or an event. These are minor things, but depending on where you are with Jesus or where you are in your emotional maturity, they may elicit major responses, don't they? Because we live here in California, we often complain about gas prices, politics, or a blown coverage from your football team leading to a loss. Way to go, Auburn University. <laughs> Just saying. But then there's the more serious matters of life. A significant health diagnosis. Physical pain and discomfort. We start asking questions like, God, are you even there? Why, why don't you just heal me? This could all be done. I know that you can do this. Or relationships that are broken. Divorce that is happening. Uh, separation between you and your children where you're not talking, where you go, God, if you just fixed my spouse, if you just fixed my kid, all of this would go away. Or financial trouble. God, why, why don't you give me this job? You know I need to make this amount of money to live and to provide. Why, why aren't you doing this for me? Oftentimes it's troubles that lead us to a place in our life where we begin to question God's sovereignty, meaning his control. We begin to question God's omnipotence, whether he has the ability or the power to do what is needed or what we think is needed. Or we even begin to question his love for us. God, do you even see me? Do you even hear my cries? Do you really love me? Would you allow this to happen to me if you did love me? Fortunately, the Bible meets these things head on. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says this to his disciples. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. But in the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We are guaranteed in this life that we will experience what? Troubles and tribulation. Jesus does not sugarcoat it. This is what we are going to experience. And yet as we look at this specific section of scripture, we learn some important things about the question that Jesus asks Peter, why do we doubt? Why do we doubt Jesus in our own life? And I want to start with this. Doubt arises when your eyes leave Jesus and you focus on your troubles. You focus on your troubles. It's so easy. We see this for the disciples in this circumstance. Did they have a right to be troubled? This is not a trick question. Did they? You bet they did. They were in serious trouble. There was nothing in their own strength that they could do to get across the Sea of Galilee. They were stuck. Their boats being inundated with water. The wind is too great. And when Jesus comes walking on the water, Peter says, Lord, if this is you, call me to yourself. And Jesus says, sure, come, Peter, come. And isn't it amazing that Peter listens? He gets out of the boat, and what's he begin to do? How many of you want to walk on water, metaphorically speaking or for real? Yeah. 
for, for real. That's why we're here today, Pastor. Great, great. Here's the reality. In Christ, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we are wholeheartedly devoted to his ways and to his word and trusting him, you can do anything in Christ. Now, don't take that for the wrong things, right? Growing up as an athlete, you used to quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which means I can score five touchdowns tonight. I can get this scholar. That's not, that's not what it means. What it means is according to God's will, what he has planned for you to glorify himself and to bless others, there's nothing that you can't accomplish when you fix your eyes on Jesus. And we see that with Peter. This is wild to me. He really did step out of the boat in a massive storm and begin to walk on the water toward Jesus. But the moment he takes his eyes off of Christ, the moment that his troubles begin to take center stage in his life, sucking the emotion, the energy, the vision, all the things that are supposed to belong to Jesus. When our troubles begin to take center stage in our life, we begin to doubt. And Peter is just you. And Peter is just me. Peter was not superhuman, and neither are we. The only one who is divine is Jesus Christ. The only one who can permanently walk on water is Jesus Christ. And it's our need for him that like Peter causes us to cry out, Lord, would you save me? Doubt arises when your eyes leave Jesus and focus on your troubles. Doubt also arises when your eyes leave Jesus and focus on who? On yourself. Uh, we could really unpack this for a long time, but I just want to look at two things that I think are important because they're a little bit sneaky in our life. Uh, the first one is this. That when you're going through trouble, when you're experiencing trials, when your emotions are hit hard, when your bank account is drained, when you lose a job and it's not your fault, when you're having relationship problems and you don't know how to fix it, the lie of the enemy is that you are all alone. You're all alone. And the reason why Satan does that is because when he can get us alone or thinking that we're all alone or that we're not loved or that God doesn't see or God doesn't understand, then what he does is he begins to get us to focus on ourselves. Now, again, don't raise your hand for this, but I just want you to think about books you've read or counselors that you've talked to who say, hey, you really need to just focus on yourself. Now, maybe there's some truth to that because it is true in the Bible. If the head is sick, if you're the head of your family and you're trying to get everybody else in line, but your walk with Jesus or you've got an addiction problem or whatever it is, if you're off, everyone's going to be off. But usually what that means is you need to focus on yourself, meaning you can find your inner strength the more time that you serve yourself and nothing could be further from the truth in God's kingdom. Consider this. Peter steps out onto the water. How does he do it? How is he walking on the water? I want to hear from you. How's he doing it? Okay, Holy Spirit. Um, so let's demystify that a little bit because we could say Holy Spirit for anything. 
I could grow hair in the name of the Holy Spirit. Like that would be really cool. Um, By Holy Spirit, if you mean walking in God's word and in God's ways at the right time, that would make sense. But in this context, the Holy Spirit's not with the disciples yet, is he? Because Jesus has not died on the cross and been raised from the dead. So how is Peter doing this? Okay, faith. Faith. How many of you go with faith? That's a good, good answer. <laughs> I like, just like super quick. He didn't see my hand, but he saw my hand. Uh, okay, faith. That's true. But, but faith in his own ability to walk on water? Faith because he's got super fast feet? Faith in, in, ah, faith in Jesus, which means a complete surrender and abandonment in which his eyes are just straight ahead on Jesus of, if you call me to come, you'll make the road straight. If you call me to come, you have a plan for this to happen. If you call me to come and I walk in obedience, I know that you'll be faithful to finish what you started. That's a great answer, that kind of faith. And so Peter steps out of the boat, faith in Jesus, eyes on him. We're going to unpack this a little bit more. But the moment he begins to hear that wind whistling in his ears, the waves continuing to crash, it doesn't take but a few seconds for his eyes to get off Jesus. And if that's not me, man, it's just so, it's so easy to do. The world is loud. Troubles are hard. Life is hard. When we experience hardship, our eyes often leave the very help that God has given us through his son. And we begin to focus all of our attention on getting my needs met so that I can get well or so that I can stop sinking. And in God's economy and kingdom, it's the very opposite. Jesus would teach, if you try to hold on to your life, you'll what? You'll lose it. But if you lose your life or you abandon yourself to Christ, you surrender to him, you will find it. And in this case, doubt arises when your eyes leave Jesus and focus on yourself, simply meaning this. I am inadequate. The world wants to tell you otherwise. No, no, you're amazing. No, I think you're pretty amazing too, but you're not that amazing. The world wants to tell you, no, 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 you're enough. What's the reality? I'm not enough. I can't save myself. I can't save others. I can't be the husband that I'm called to be in my own strength because in my sinful nature, I'm just a selfish man who will do what I want to do. I can't be a father to my children in the way that they need a father, not without my life being surrendered to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 reminds us that we have a great high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands our troubles. He knows the hardships that you face. He's felt the grief. He knows the pressure and the weight of what you go through. And yet he calls us to boldly come before the throne of grace to obtain mercy. 
The second thing in regards to focusing on self is a little more sneaky. Where does our faith actually have its foundation? Because oftentimes, if our faith is in, well, I go to church. My faith is in, well, I do my daily bread devotional every morning. My faith is in, well, I pray three times a day. Or I hear people say, I, I don't know what happened. I sent my kid to Awana and to youth group, and they turned out like this. I've been sitting in the pews for 40 years. I listen to every sermon. I sing with every song. I always put money in the box. God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? That kind of faith is not faith in Jesus. It's faith where? Ugh. I agree. It's not faith in Jesus. It's faith in our own works. I did this. I do this. I've invested here. And we want to know, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Because I feel like you owe me something. Faith in the things that we do is not faith in Jesus. It's faith in ourselves. And it's just easy for it to sneak in. Because is reading your Bible a good thing and what you're supposed to do? You bet it is. Same with prayer. Same with Awana. Same with serving in ministry. These are all good things that we're called to. But if it ends up being faith in our own works, then we are focused on self and our eyes have left Christ. The Apostle Paul understood this well. Uh, he's sitting in prison. He's writing from prison. And it's because he's walked in God's ways that he's in prison. And what a great opportunity to focus on yourself, to be upset. But instead, he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. It's on your screens. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That is why I'm suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. I love this verse. It's not rooted in what Paul has done in his lifetime. And thank goodness for that as he calls himself the chief of sinners. We elevate Paul to this special level and some in other faiths or sects of faith believe Paul is this saint or this lesser Jesus, but somehow divine. And yet he's a sinner just like us who did amazing things as he walked with Christ. And he says, I know the one, that's Jesus, in whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until the day of his return. What has he entrusted him? What's Paul entrusted Jesus with? His life, his ministry the lives of others that he's been discipling, the churches that he's been planting, none of it is planted in Paul's name. It's been entrusted to Jesus, the one in whom he trusts. Lastly, I want to look at how doubt arises when your eyes leave Jesus and focus on your feelings. Feelings are a major thing in our culture, and feelings are not wrong. Remember, we're created in the image of God. The emotions that he's given us are reflections of his own emotions. But as Pastor Dave often says, emotions make really good passengers, but what? Lousy drivers. When we're controlled by our emotions, man, we are tossed all over the place. We go to extreme highs and extreme lows. We say things that we regret, and we don't say the things that we should. 
And I can only imagine when we look at this text in Matthew 14, the disciples were feeling terrified. First, because they couldn't get out of their own circumstances in their strength. Second, because they think they see a ghost. Third, because their friends stepping out of the boat into the storm. They're scared all over the place. And what about us in our life? Do you ever feel like hope is lost? Do you ever feel like you yourself or someone else that you love is beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy? Do you ever feel that God doesn't care about you or he's not listening? Do you ever feel like how can a God that loves allow so much evil to happen? All of us have those feelings. But thank goodness it's not our feelings that determine what is true. And we live in a culture that wants to bow to our feelings in order to feel better. And here's what I love about Jesus. The wind and waves do cease, but when does that happen? <laughs> At the very end of this passage. And isn't it true in our own lives? Jesus is rarely taking us out of the storm. He's usually meeting us in the storm and walking with us. Because that's how he grows us in our faith. That's how he builds trust in a relationship. Just think about little kids. Um, I've got a one-story house, and my kids have a drone that they like to play with. And at first, they weren't very good at flying it, and so it always got stuck where? On the roof. And it's easy for a child to get on the roof. I don't know why that is. It just happens automatically. But it's... Miraculous that they can get up. They just can't what? They can't get down. And the moment older brother goes, don't worry, dude, just jump to me. I'll catch you. The other sibling's like, yep, nope, that's not going to happen. And they call for who? They call for dad. And even when I come out and I'm like, yeah, just jump to me. No problem. They're like, it's really high. And from where I'm sitting, I'm like, dude, it's not that high. But you ever remember being that kid in that high place going, no, really, it's, it's up there. Boy, we're no different as adults, aren't we? And these doubts creep in. Yeah, but what if you drop me? What if I miss? What if I don't do it right and it causes you not to do it right? Oh, things that we never have to worry about with our Heavenly Father. Because I'm always going to stumble coming off the roof. And he's always going to what? He just will. Peter just stumbles. He doubts. He takes his eyes off of what is most important, Jesus. He looks at his troubles, or he gets consumed with himself, or he is directed by his feelings, and he begins to what? He begins to sink. There's three things I want to look at real quick in this text that are so important for us not to miss. Peter stepped out in faith. And then he loses his faith and he begins to sink. But here are three things that you can hold on to even in times of trouble. Even in times of trouble, Jesus will comfort you. He will comfort you. Uh, here's, here's where we see this in the passage. They think they see a ghost. They're terrified. And what does Jesus do immediately, the scripture says? 
he makes himself known. Be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. I used to think in my own life uh, that when I was going through times of trouble, it was because God was punishing me for the sin that I had committed. And because there is much sin, I wasn't surprised when things weren't going my way. And I had this view of God that he was after me, that he was punishing me, that he was out to get me. And it wasn't until I, be, I was able to grow in maturity and understanding his word and his character that I realized that's not God after me. That's God's grace and mercy upon my life to allow me to sink just enough to do what? Lord, save me. Because otherwise, in my own selfishness, you know what I wouldn't do? I'd be like, God, I got most of this, but if you could just do this little bit, I'd really appreciate that. Jesus allows Peter to sink even just a little bit so that Peter will cry out to him. Even in times of trouble, Jesus will comfort you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Uh, you can hold on to this. If Jesus has bid you come, if he's given you a command through his word, if he's told you to walk in a certain way, and here's what that looks like. If you're dating anybody right now, it doesn't matter if you're a young adult or an old adult. If you're dating anyone and God's word says, wait to have sex until marriage. He's bidding you to come to him in that way. When you experience trouble, when maybe the other person in the relationship goes, I, I don't think I want to do this anymore because I, you know, I have needs, you know, I have needs and they should be met. We want to go, oh, I'm sinking. And Jesus goes, no, actually, I'm pulling you up from the pit that you're sinking into. I want to do something different in your relationship. I have a plan for a healthy marriage someday. So you don't have to bring in baggage. Or when it comes to business and you know that you can just fudge one number and it will make all the difference in the taxes that are coming up in January through April. And there's a choice before you to answer with integrity or to do your best to just make a couple of extra bucks or thousands or tens of thousands. And God's way say, do it my way for you will be blessed. How? I'm not entirely sure, but I know this. In those moments where Jesus bids you to come, he will not leave you nor forsake you. And even though Peter stumbles, what's Jesus still do? Reaches out, grabs his hand and pulls him up. Lastly, even in times of trouble, Jesus will challenge you to grow in your faith. I love this. Once Peter's secure, Jesus has that question for Peter. Oh, you little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Because Jesus wants to take Peter from where he is in order to lead him to where he needs to be. And it's often in those times of trouble that God is most going to grow our faith because we become most dependent upon him when we recognize our own strength will not suffice. Faith overcomes doubt when your eyes are fixed on Jesus. Faith overcomes doubt when your eyes are fixed on Jesus. Well, what does this mean? Because it can't be faith 
in fixing our troubles. It can't be faith in ourselves. It can't be faith in our feelings. So what does faith look like when our eyes are fixed on Jesus? Uh, We don't get this detail in the gospel of Matthew, but in John chapter 6, it says that as Jesus is walking on the water and the disciples recognize that it's him, it says that they willingly invite him where? Into the boat. Oh, hey, Jesus, good to see you. Please get in. Here is what it looks like to fix your eyes on Jesus, no matter what circumstance you're in. If it's business, you invite Jesus to come into the boat and be the boss or the Lord of your business. If it's in your marriage, you invite Jesus to come into the boat of your marriage and to be the boss and Lord of that relationship. If it's in your parenting, you go, Lord, I am so inadequate. I can remember back to my childhood, what a mess I was, and now you've given me these kids to steward. Jesus, I need you. Please get into the boat of parenting with me and be the boss and the Lord of my children. That's what it looks like to have faith that overcomes doubt when your eyes are fixed on Jesus. It's literally inviting him in to every single area of your life. The temptation for us is you got to do an hour more Bible study every day. That might be good. Not sure if you've got the time, but that might be good. Or the temptation is I got to, I got to spend at least 45 minutes in my prayer closet. Um, Okay. That could be helpful too, but your faith won't come from your works. Your faith will come from Jesus Christ and a simple invitation to say, please come into this area with me. I want to make you Lord of all of this, not just the things that I've picked and chosen so far, all of it. He will willingly come into the boat. And the moment Jesus steps into the boat, what happens? The sea goes calm. Now, don't misunderstand this. I don't want us to correlate this where, well, okay, I invited Jesus in. Now everything's supposed to get better. Remember, Jesus doesn't come to remove us from the storms. He comes to grow us so that we can walk in the storms and still trust him. And you can be in the middle of a storm, something that's outside of your control. And yet you can be walking with Jesus in faith as if the wind and waves are not impacting you. Just like when Peter originally stepped out onto that water. Faith overcomes doubt when your eyes are fixed on Jesus. I want to move us to Luke chapter 22 for our second question of the day. Luke chapter 22, we're going to be in verses 39 through 45. And here's the context of what we're reading. Most of you know this story. Uh, Jesus has just finished what is known as the Last Supper with his disciples. It's on the same night that he will be betrayed by Judas. He has washed the disciples' feet. He has instituted communion, the breaking of the bread, the giving of the cup of the new covenant, which is his blood. And when him and the disciples are finished, they head out to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 39 of Luke 22, are you there? Still hear Bibles turning, so I'll give you just a second. Jesus is going to ask his disciples this question Why do you sleep? Why do you sleep? 
Now, if I just ask that as a general question, how many of you have answers? What are some of the reasons why you sleep? <laughs> That's so generic, though. Like, be more specific. I'm tired. Why are you tired? Toddler. Who said toddler? God bless you. Lauren, Lauren Derrickson. Another on the way. You've not tasted tired yet, my friend. <laughs> why else are we tired? Work. Work. A long day at work could just be an emotional day at work. It could just be the fact that you've been working for 45 years. You're tired. Why else? Seeding people or feeding people? Feeding people, yes. And yeah, I mean, Jamie, you're literally making three meals and 11 snack times for those kids. And sometimes they're my kids in addition to your kids. So thank you. Why else do we get tired? Because we're sick. Because we're stressed. Our body literally is like, I, I cannot function properly. I need to do nothing. Why else? Fear. fear. Really good. Uh, fear can cripple us to where we don't want or can't move forward. And therefore, we literally go, it's just better to lay in bed and do nothing. Because I don't want to have to work through or deal with or I don't feel equipped and adequate to handle what is on my plate. All really good things. Thank you for your participation. Why do you sleep? Well, here we go. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Coming out, meaning from where they were celebrating the Passover meal, he, Jesus, went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, that would be the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus gives a command to his disciples. What's the command? Pray. Why does he want them to pray? So they don't enter into temptation. And Jesus was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, meaning he went away from them about as far as you can throw a rock. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup, the cup of suffering, by the way, that he was about to endure, Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I love how Jesus models this. He tells his disciples, pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Then he goes a little bit further away. And what does he do himself? Therefore, if Jesus needed to pray not to enter into temptation, who else needs to? Oh, Lord, have mercy. Verse 41. Excuse me, verse 43. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven strengthening him. How many of you have glossed over this verse before? How many of you didn't know that this verse was in there? Guys, even though Jesus is fully divine, don't forget that he's also fully man. And when you pray according to your heavenly father's will, and you're out of strength, you know that you're not enough. You're desperate for Jesus to move and you surrender not only your life, but your circumstances to him. Him being a good father, do you think he will also strengthen you? Wow. Jesus is simply modeling for us what we're called to and what's available to us as well. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them what? He found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? 
Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. You guys gave some really good reasons for why we sleep. I'm going to add to the list. Uh, These are a little bit more general. But why do we sleep? Well, here's some reasons why we sleep. Number one is apathy. Apathy. Um, Jesus, by the way, isn't just saying, why do you physically sleep? He's challenging his disciples. I, I gave you a command to pray so that you don't enter into temptation. Why are you being spiritually lazy? Man, that question hit home for me this week. I wish it didn't, but it did. I started calculating my time and how I spend it in different places. And I was like, oh, what am I doing? What am I doing? That phone, like, it needs to go away, right? It's just so easy. (laughs) Oh, you got to see this one. (laughs) Nope, can't watch that one. And an hour goes by, or an hour and a half goes by. Or for those who are really into politics, you just start reading article after article. Or for those of us who are continuing to pray for Israel, it's so easy to get caught up in all the different pieces that are moving right now. And before you know it, all this time has gone by and it's built what? Nothing. Spiritual apathy. Uh, What does that even look like? Here's what it looks like to be spiritually lazy because of apathy. Apathy is just indifference. I can take or leave my faith. It's a good Sunday thing to have, but it really doesn't impact the rest of my life. It's not influencing my daily decisions. It's not causing me to do business any different. It's not giving me vision for my family. I just go on Sunday. It's a good thing. So here I am. And Jesus wants us to watch out for spiritual laziness and apathy. As a matter of fact, it was Adam and Eve who were spiritually apathetic when they took the fruit. Adam didn't fulfill his role as the leader of his family and the protector of his wife. Eve didn't follow her role in being led by her husband and went and had a conversation with the serpent and was deceived. Sodom and Gomorrah, we all think of their wickedness because of sexual sin, and that's true, but you know what led them to that? Idleness. An abundance of time not well spent. Spiritual laziness, which then gave way to the disaster that befalled both of them. King David When he commits adultery with Bathsheba, where's he supposed to be? He's supposed to be at war. It was springtime. All the generals go out and they're supposed to fight God's enemies. And instead, David is somewhere where he's not supposed to be, looking at things that don't belong to him. Then finally, there's Peter sleeping among the disciples. And Jesus comes and goes, Peter, disciples, why do you sleep? Don't sleep. Pray so that you don't give in to temptation. And what does Peter do later that night? Denies Jesus three times after he swore on his own life, I'll be right by your side. I'm ready to die for you. We're not enough. We're inadequate. We don't have the strength. But Christ does. And Jesus calls his disciples to pray. As we enter into this Christmas season, why do you sleep? Why are you spiritually lazy? A busyness, 
Uh, busyness just consumes our life. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're busy. I can only imagine how busy people are. And with good intentions, we go, oh man, I know I should get in the word more because I need to hide God's word in my heart. I need to know his word so I can know his will. I know I should pray more because then it would give me the opportunity to, to cry out to him and to really lay my burdens before his feet and to seek rest. I, I, I should do that. But it's busyness that keeps us from the things that we know we're supposed to do. We also sleep because of selfishness. It's just who we are. In my flesh, I rather watch three and a half hours of Netflix than have to use my brain and my heart and possibly get really convicted when I open up God's word and then have to ask for forgiveness and then ask God to use me differently than I'm being used because that's a lot of effort and work. You can't stand idly by in a relationship with Jesus, but in a relationship with Netflix, oh man, idleness is the key. But here's what I know. The world wants to sell us, hey, you just need some me time. You've been working really hard and we buy into it. And then we watch the three and a half hours of Netflix. And how many of you feel recharged after three and a half hours? Like you're ready to go. You're ready to go nowhere except for the next episode. But you spend just 30 minutes in God's word and prayer with a humble heart seeking Jesus because you're desperate. You may not have all your problems fixed, but how many of you feel hopeful when there wasn't hope? How many of you feel loved when you weren't loved before or didn't feel loved before? See, Jesus isn't just giving instruction to his disciples of, well, you better pray because that's what good religious people do. No, because there's power in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And keep this in mind. Jesus says, pray with me. I'm going to go over here a little ways, but I want us praying together. And where does he sit right now? At the right hand of God, interceding for his people. Constantly praying for you. And when you enter into prayer with him according to God's will, now you're aligning your heart and your will with Jesus' heart and his will and now you can go walk on water, metaphorically speaking. Finally, we often sleep just because of difficult circumstances, because life is hard. God understands this. As a matter of fact, the scripture even says, look at verse 45. When Jesus rose up from prayer, and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from what? From sorrow. It wasn't because they didn't care. It wasn't because they just had a long day. Maybe that added to it. But they actually fell asleep. Because Jesus was full of sorrow and anguish of grief. And yet Jesus is making the point of just because you're filled with sorrow doesn't give you an excuse become spiritually lazy because that would be focusing on who? Ourselves. And Jesus wants our faith fixed on him. So he says, pray, pray with me, align your will with the father's will and watch what I do to keep you from giving in to temptation. 
Jesus strengthens your faith to overcome the flesh. I was tempted in this one to say that uh, prayer strengthens our faith to overcome the flesh. And there may be some truth to that. But again, it's not me praying that causes my faith to be strengthened. It's Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. The NIV says the pioneer and perfecter of my faith. My faith begins with who? I'm so thankful for this, by the way. Don't miss this. My faith does not begin with me going, okay, Jesus, I'm here. I'm going to do this. You and me. I got this. We're going to pray. We're going to do Bible study. That's not where my faith began. To have faith in the first place comes from who? It comes from him. It couldn't ever come from me. He is the pioneer, the beginner, the trailblazer of my faith. And he's also the one who will perfect it. Man, I love that. I love that. Jesus strengthens your faith to overcome the flesh. We talked about what that looked like at the, in our first question, how inviting Jesus into the boat, right? Uh, asking him to be Lord and boss of all those different areas of life. So what's it look like for Jesus to strengthen your faith to overcome the flesh? It looks like humility. Admitting, Jesus, I don't have the strength. Where I'm weak, would you be what? Would you be strong? It's coming to him and laying our shortcomings before him, which he already knows. But when those things are brought into the light, he then takes the weak areas of our life to show himself strong. I would encourage you this week, spend some time reflecting on areas of your life where you've been doing things in your own strength or where you've been spiritually lazy or sleeping. And this isn't to beat you over the head. This isn't to make you feel bad. But if there's spiritual apathy in our lives, and I had to do this this week, I had to bring that before God and go, God, I'm sorry. This is, this is on me. I've been pursuing other things instead of you to fill my cup, which still leaves me empty. Reflect on those things and then bring them before Jesus and go, Jesus, Will you take the place of the things that I've been trying to use to fill my cup? To grow my faith? Because faith isn't found in more money or more time at your job. Faith isn't found in not cursing. Faith isn't found in being a better parent by spending 10 more minutes with your kid. Faith is going to be found where? In Jesus and Christ alone. That is all. I also want to encourage you this. We often say that we don't worship a lightning God, meaning he doesn't just strike us and our life is suddenly where we want it and our character is built in him and it's one day at a time that God builds his men and his women. But here's where I want to encourage you. Simple obedience to God's word leads to spiritual passion. Simple obedience to God's word leads to spiritual passion. If you're struggling with spiritual laziness, the opposite of spiritual laziness is spiritual passion. But it's not a feeling, remember, because we can't turn to our feelings. And it's not getting our troubles fixed because then our eyes are on our troubles. 
And it's not finding it within ourselves because then we're relying on self. Instead, simple obedience reminds us this. God is not hard to please, and he bids us, just like Peter, to come, to pray. Spend some time with me in the word. Not because you have to, but because Jesus loved you first. And to respond in love to him, John 14, 15 says, if you love me, do what? Obey my commandments. I give you opportunities for simple obedience. Walk in them and watch your spiritual passion grow. Watch what happens in your life when you do things God's way, according to God's word instead of your own ways. Come out of spiritual laziness. Come out of sleep. For Jesus strengthens your faith to overcome the flesh. Amen? Lord, thank you for our time in your word today. Pray that it would bear fruit in the lives of many. Lord, thank you that, like Peter, you're more than willing to reach down and to save us from sinking. And it is your desire for us to cry out. Lord, forgive us when we fall asleep and remind us the value. Even when we're tired or filled with grief or fear or sorrow, that spending time with you not only leads us away from temptation, but grows our faith so that we can trust in you for all things. Lord, we rejoice in your son, Jesus Christ, and his death and his resurrection to rescue us from our sins. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. amen. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.